And some rules of thumb for me in stories are, if I'm going to be critical of a teacher, I will try to frame it as an error that I have made. Mm-hmm. I was, and, and probably at least 60% of those are true, but at least 40% <laughs> of my fabrications. Where I don't want to, I don't want to throw another teacher under the bus because that mm-hmm. that error that I observed this teacher that could be a great example of something to not do, I will frame it as I've made this mistake and here's what I did mm-hmm. and here's how I did it, which which softens it for the audience. I'm Jim Knight, co-founder of the Instructional Coaching Group, and you're listening to Coaching Conversations, where I talk with coaching experts from around the world so that all of us can learn better ways to make an unmistakably positive impact on people around us. The Teaching Learning Coaching Conference is the world's leading conference for instructional coaching and instructional practice. Hosted by Jim Knight and the Instructional Coaching Group, this is the biggest event for instructional coaches and the teams they work with. Register now to be a part of TLC 2023, a year in the life of a coach in person or virtually, on October 16th, 17th, and 18th. To learn more, visit tlcconference.com. Hi, everybody. Uh, Jim Knight, and um, I'm excited, really excited, to talk with three people who I think are really uh, just absolutely wonderful people. Um, I have been kind of dreaming about this particular conversation for a long time, and the three people here are three of the best I've seen probably the best three people. They were my first three picks, at any rate, in terms of who I could talk to about this particular topic. So I have a story for each of them. And just so you know, on my screen, I've got Marsha in my upper left-hand corner, and then I've got Randy right beneath Marsha. And then to the right of Randy on my screen is Tom. So I'm going to kind of follow that sequence. So first off, Marsha, how I've come to know her and um, uh, what I know about her in terms of the work we've done together. And as I said, these are three people who um, were my first choice to talk about presentations. Now, I met Marsha the first time at Learning Forward. And now she's come and presented at the Teaching Learning Coaching Conference a couple of times. And uh, she's just spectacular. But my first experience was having the room next to Marsha Tate. And, uh, and, and so have you ever had that experience, huh? Uh, no, I, I've not. Yeah. Well, I told Learning Forward after that experience, I will come back, but the rule has to be I'm not going to have the room next to Marsha Tate because <laughs> in the morning I could tell everybody was like, they, they're they having way more fun than me. I wish I was in that room. And in the afternoon, I was thinking, gee, I wish I was in that room too. That really sounds like a great time. And it's just like a buzz of energy, an explosion of fun and music and all this variety of stuff going on. And We'd go out for our break a little early so we could beat the rush. Everybody was in there engaged and locked in, and uh, and said I. And then I went to Marsha to praise her and what a fun time it. And she was immediately like, "Oh, I'm sorry, it was too noisy." And I, no, 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 that's exactly what it should be. And uh, she's consequently come a friend and presented at TLC as I said a couple times. And um, she creates an experience when you uh, participate in a Marsha Tate presentation you you're having an experience thank you now uh randy um we were doing a project for coaching back in the 90s and then the early 2000s and we were working in uh topeka kansas and uh it became pretty clear that we needed to work on some things around behavior we didn't have any kind of model for behavior and i went out to see a person named jody king and um 
Jody is, uh, uh, she was uh, in charge of special ed for uh, Cecil County, Maryland, I think was where it was. And she's a wonderful person. And uh, so Jody, I told her all about what we were looking at. And I was like, oh, we're looking at Boys Town. We're looking at all these other things we're looking at. And she said, you need to know about Randy Sprick. And she gave me her book like she was giving me a sacred text. It was her version. She said, you have to have this book. And then um, the next day, there was a snowstorm in Baltimore. And I was on the runway for like four or five hours in the airport for about 12 hours. So I thought, well, I might as well read this book. So by the time I got back to Kansas, I said, um, oh, Randy's the guy. We need to work with him. Two weeks later, I went to the... Uh, Portland and uh, uh, went to his presentation. I sat down and the person beside me turned to me and she said, have you ever heard Randy speak before? And I said, no. And she said, he always gets a standing ovation. Every time he presents, he gets a standing ovation. And um, I'm sure Randy's going to say that's, that's been at least one situation where that didn't happen, but nonetheless, <laughs> it happened that time. And, uh, and, and Randy has uh, been a great partner. We have a thing at the instructional coaching group called the Don Deschler Leadership Award, and Randy was one of the first people to win the award. And it's a way of honoring people whose work has deeply shaped what we do. And in terms of gathering data as an instructional coach and focusing on behavior, Randy has been uh, an, a generous with his time and a wonderful partner and a spectacular presenter. I've always loved inviting him to do things because I know, well, this is the case of all of you, that it's going to go well. Now, Tom, you may not know any of this. I'm about to tell you. Uh, when I was the doc student in, I think, 1999, I've been trying to find the date, and uh, I went to uh, Learning Forward at New Orleans, and uh, there was a uh, person who was supposed to present, and they couldn't present, and so you were the presenter, and uh, so that's 21 years ago. I hadn't heard of Tom Gusky, and you gave this presentation that just blew me away. I just couldn't believe how good it was. And I said, we have to get him to come back to Kansas, to the center. So a couple of years later, I invited you to Kansas. I was still a doc student. It took me a while. And um, I asked if I could uh, pick you up and drop you off at the airport. On this part you do know. On the way back to the airport, um, I said to you, how did you become such a great presenter? I mean, you're just such a spectacular. And you got a standing ovation in that session. <laughs> and, um, and you said to me, when I started out, I read every book I could find on how to present, and I tried to apply all those ideas. And uh, that day, I started to do the exact same thing. I looked for every book I could find on presenting. So, so that's why I'm so glad you're here. Now, all your work has really shaped my work. Your work, Tom, I know you've done a lot of things around assessment, but I have to say the thing that's affected me the most is your, your great book on evaluating professional development. That's a paradigm I always share with people. Um, also, your commitment to research has been a uh, influence on my my thinking too. So anyway, uh, that took too long, but I'm so glad I got to tell the story of each three of you, and I'm so glad you're here. And let's get going. So I have these warm up questions, and the two questions are: What's something uh, people don't know about you? And then what's something you're grateful for? So we'll we'll start with you, Marsha. Okay. Um, I don't think most people know that I am an avid sports fan. And we actually have season to the uh, season tickets to the Falcons game, and love the Braves. I'm from Atlanta, and so it's hard to be a sports fan in Atlanta because we tend to lose when we shouldn't. 
I mean, it's it's I'll never forget the 2017 Super Bowl when we're up 21 to three at halftime and we lost the Super Bowl. So we'll never forget that. But um, and to New England, too. Let's end it. Yeah. 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 And then the thing I'm most grateful for, I think, first, two things. First of all, everything that educators are doing now in this challenging time so that students are continuing to learn. I'm grateful for that. But I'm also grateful uh, because two years ago in November, my husband had a kidney transplant. Our daughter was the donor and she gave one of her kidneys to her dad. And I'm grateful that even though he's taking immunosuppressant drugs, he's doing very well with the with the pandemic. So I'm grateful for that. Me too. Randy, we'll, we'll go to you. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, let's see. Something people may not know about me. Uh, uh, they may know I'm from the Pacific Northwest, but uh, I am incredibly blessed to live for 35 years deep in a forest. And although we're only 15 minutes from Eugene and 25 minutes from the airport, uh, it's just a wonderful outdoor setting. And uh, things that I'm grateful for would be that. My family, in fact, uh, forgive me if I look distracted, Marsha, while you were explaining uh, uh, your answer, but my grandson was just running my uh, office here is in the basement, and uh, he was just running around waving at me, and I was trying to decide how to put a feet away to my grandson. Well, Marsha was speaking. I restrained myself. Please uh, wave at him. Do that. <laughs> very, very grateful for family, friends, uh, and deeply grateful for the colleagues that I get to work with who are uh, making the shift to the virtual environment in terms of their pro the professional development that we provide, but also, as Marcia said, the, the stress that educators are under right now and the energy that they're using to try to make all of this work is just awe-inspiring. Tom, we'll turn to you. Sure. I guess, um, well, something that most people don't know about me would be that... Um, in high school, I was an athlete, but I was a part of a sport that is perhaps the least lifelong sport that anybody could ever take part in. I was a pole vaulter. Um, and there are very few people in their adult lives carry around 15-foot fiberglass poles to do what they're looking at your So uh, I've kind of moved beyond that to other things. Uh, what I'm grateful for would be very similar to what Marsha and, and Randy talked about. I mean, we're in this this horrible worldwide pandemic that has brought sickness and, and illness and death and horrible tragedies to so many people. And we're also sort of recognizing the profound inequity that exists in our society, racial inequity in particular, and, and challenging that. But in the, in the midst of all this turmoil, we've seen these just remarkable instances of, of courage and, and bravery and kindness and generosity. And I think I've always had this sort of confidence in the goodness of human beings. And this has helped enliven that in me to recognize that in the midst of all this trouble, we've seen all these wonderful teachers that are going out of their way to do wonderful things for their kids. And, and people are standing up for the social justice we really need to have and has been left untouched for too long. Uh, and that really encourages me and it, it gives me... I think a lot to look forward to and be grateful for. So I, I know you like in, uh, get involved, but I'm going to get involved today and say, um, I'll skip the, what well, you don't know about me one, but well, I guess that's not fair. So, uh, 
Something you don't know about me is before I turned 18, I had hitchhiked to every province and territory in Canada. So as early as 16, I was out on the road hitchhiking out thousands of miles. This is back in the 70s when that's what everybody kind of did. But So I knew Canada pretty well as a growing up in Canada. And what I have to say I'm grateful for is uh, Matt, who is organizing our session today, just had a grandson, and uh, Matt um, works for um, ICG, but what you may not know is his wife is my daughter, Emily. And so um, very grateful for a new grandson, just barely uh, a couple weeks old. I think it's the 21st he was born, if I've got that right. And um, the great debate, is it going to be called Franklin or Sly, for <laughs> short for Sylvester? That's what's happening in there. And I, I'm on the side of Sly, but... Franklin is the first name, and it's kind of winning out. And there are some advantages. So I'm very grateful for Franklin Sylvester. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll start with you now, Randy, and just keep my cycle going. So our first question really is, how did you develop as a presenter? What comes to mind when you think about, uh, you know, sort of developing the craft and the art of being a presenter? Um, I, I wish I could describe that it has been like what yeah what you what Tom did and then what you did in relationship to Tom which is really studying up on it uh, the reality though is uh, I just kind of made it up as I went uh, uh, in spite of being someone that is your line for everything actually <laughs> I said that's your line for just about everything it's like well that's make it up as we go approach just about everything and I've just been so lucky that I've been able to make that at least semi work but. Um, I actually started presenting as a trainer of direct instruction materials. And so there was a, a very good base of content and practice and things that in training the teachers. Uh, and I just really enjoyed it. And I just found that uh, uh, people could respond uh, well to me. And uh, the, the hand bone part of me came out to make it fun and funny and so on. Uh, and I just gradually, I, I think, paid attention to what seemed to work to keep people engaged, what seemed to work to have people at the end of sessions uh, expressing on either evaluations or interactionally, uh, that they got the skills that I was trying to present. And um, just continuing, I think, to really pay attention to audiences as almost almost a conversational factor so that when you're talking to somebody, you can tell when you've kind of rambled on too long because the, their attention is wavering. So you do something to, uh, to pull it back in some way or get more interaction. Uh, and I think just paying attention to the, the, both the needs of the audience, but the response mm-hmm. of the audience is what uh, had, had me shape the, the skills that I've developed over the years. So you, uh, if I've got this uh, right, and uh, uh, so it was really about watching the audience, gauging their response, and then fine-tuning, sometimes rejecting, sometimes trying new things, but keep going till you consistently get that response you want from the audience, which is a, probably a kind of a connection, an energy that you feel with the audience. Yeah, and, and uh, a sense that uh, connection would be the great word that with the vast majority of people that are there, they're engaging in whatever activities are taking place. 
Uh, they're they're laughing at the right times, uh, not not laughing at what would not be the right times, and so on. And uh, trying almost to just think of it as an interaction. Tom, how about you? Well, it's much. Like I kind of stole your thunder because I I told you what you told me, but yes, yes, no, it's and I I do believe that there there are uh, a few special people that uh, that whole process comes quite naturally to them, uh, that they are able to, uh, from their own sort of perspective, be able to communicate ideas in ways that make sense and sort of inspire people. I think those are, are really pretty rare. I think maybe, you know, one in a thousand of the people that are presenters. Uh, for most people, I think it is a, a craft that's acquired. And... It's uh, so when you see like the the four of us making presentations, it seems very smooth and and natural and easygoing. But I think in large part that's part of a, a hidden deception that that people don't understand the 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 preparation that was behind it, the thoughtfulness that went into it. Uh, the many times we tried things and they failed, uh, learning from those experiences and coming back and saying, "Well, I'm not going to do that again." And then being able to refine that, and and I think too, you're you're also looking for people here who, every time they do it, they find ways to do it better. So that from every presentation you make, you're you're looking at what went well and and what didn't, and what sort of things came across the audience, and what you could tell, as Randy said, from your feedback from your audience, what's confusing them or not making sense. Uh, so it's a it's a sort of studied craft that we always are watching ourselves do and then trying to trying to do in better ways. I mean, I started a middle school teacher and at one time during the school year, the kids would do a play and oftentimes they would mimic each of us as teachers. It was one of the most embarrassing things that ever happened. <laughs> because there were these sort of nuances and, and habits that you don't realize you have. But when a 13-year-old picks up on them, and then replicates them on stage. It's, it's really embarrassing, but it's really learning too. And and so it's uh, we see ourselves in in recorded presentations like this. And you say, "Well, I don't do that," or you know, but we do. And and you try to learn from it and just just make it better. So it, I think it is a study craft. I think it's something that, that we work on constantly and always try to improve. With that in, that that notion that we want to both communicate clearly and inspire people to make important changes. Effective communication strategies are essential for professional success and are even more important in our personal lives. Coaches, leaders, and educators who make an impact communicate their message clearly, build healthy emotional connections with others, and maneuver through emotionally complex situations in ways that allow them to speak the truth in ways that will be heard. Better Conversations introduces six beliefs and 10 habits to help you have an immediate positive impact on your ability to communicate at work and at home. Join us for this virtual workshop and learn more by visiting instructionalcoaching.com. So I guess I would say uh, um, it, that uh, an openness to learn is a necessary prerequisite. If you if you blame the audience or blame the food or blame whatever and you 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 know which sometimes you know defense mechanisms are there for a reason but right. but if you if you can't embrace it as a learner you're you're going to be stuck where you are I guess is the way to put it 
Uh, Marsha, over to you. More than 25 years ago, I gave my first presentation to an adult audience, and I was so nervous. It was a good thing I was behind the podium because my knees were actually shaking. <laughs> and I don't think anybody realized it because I think I covered it up. But there was a teacher who came up to me at the end of that, and she said, Marsha, you did a great job. And she didn't realize she really changed my life because she gave me the confidence to get up and do it again. And I agree with Tom that we we strive to get better every time we present. We strive to get better than the time before. And you work at your craft. Another thing I want to add to the conversation is over the this is my 47th year in education. So over the years that I have been in the business and many of those have been as a participant in a staff development offering, I have seen pre presenters that were not good. And so I have learned from them what not to do. It's like, I don't want to do that again. I, I watch how the audience responds to mm -hmm. And so I've, I've taken a lot from that as well as reading what to do, but also looking at what not to do. My very first presentation, I was one of those non-examples. I thought I had to cover, I, it was it was a real death by overhead um, <laughs> presentation. I, I must have had a hundred slides. And I swear to you, two thirds of the way through the presentation, the uh, person who invited me said, you know, I think we've got a lot to think about. Like he cut me off because <laughs> everybody was like, in a, like they were experiencing narcolepsy or something. I mean, it was just like awful. And then I was like, well, yeah, I, I, I guess I got to improve. You know, I got to get you a little know, bit better. To, to one, of the, one of the things that Tom said that Marcia embellished on, um, the, the idea that we, through it being a craft, we do tend to make it look easy. Uh, as as I've been working with building a cadre of other colleagues and trainers who do the content that we do, one of the things we have learned as we're kind of looking for people that might eventually do what we do because they already know our content, we've learned that anybody who comes up at the end of the presentation and says, oh, I could do what you do. <laughs> is not somebody we want <laughs> somebody who is thinking it's easy and i just love to be doing that it's, it's not easy yeah. to do it well. it's not it's not well easy. well that means you've done a good job though because it made it, you made it look easy yeah uh, are there principles and i'll turn uh, to you now tom are there principles that guide the work you do as you step back and think of the way you present there sort of principles you work from definitely i um and I, I'll, I'll make this point of the story. Uh, several years ago, I was at a, at a conference and, and shared the presentation with uh, my good friend, Susan Brookhart. And then after the presentation, we were sitting in the lobby of the hotel where the conference was being held. And, and a person came up to our table and said, that I really enjoyed your presentation. I thought you did a great job. And I'm kind of at the stage in my career where I'd like to do the same sort of thing. You know, I'd, I'd like to really become a national consultant and present at, at conference and things like that. Can you give me some ideas, some hints upon how I, I can really break into the field? And without batting an eye, Sue turned to him and said, well, you, you kind of have to have good ideas to begin. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that's so true, you know, that we have this idea that it's, that it's all stylistic. And, and it's all method, when it's not, it's substance. That the guiding principle where you start is, do I have good ideas that can make education better? Are there ideas that I can offer that I think are really going to help teachers do things better to help more kids learn well? And, and starting with that premise. And so we, 
if you start with that, and then and then second of all, you you sort of start with the why instead of the how or the what. Uh, and once you've got the why, then you you got to figure out well where do these ideas come from. And I think one of the other major dilemmas I see in our field is that we we take ideas that have been with us for a long time where we name them and claim them as our own when they're really not. And to be able to really help the field in such a way that we're building on the vast knowledge base that's already been accumulated. I had an opportunity to present at Learning Forward uh, last year and part of the presentation, I, I put up these quotes on the on a slide that that, that and ask people if they could identify who said these things and from where they came. And so a lot of the quotes are about how we need to build based learning on experience and build it into the mental structure that kids already had. And uh, and people were all naming really current people and current, every one of those quotes was taken directly from a book that was published in 1938 by John Dewey called Education as Experience. Uh, I put up another series of quotes about how we have to have alignment in what we teach and and what we set out to teach and what we teach and what we assess should be the same and and these things need to align and and, and those common elements people talk about being a part of uh, you know the effective schools what professional learning communities should be concentrating on as people identify those and again it was very moderate people all of them were direct quotes from a book published in 1949 by Ralph Tyler called mm. Basic Principles of Curriculum Instruction. I'm convinced that if we're going to advance the field, we can't keep doing that. We we need to be able to say, here are good ideas, and people had them before I did. And what we can do today to build upon and extend those ideas and extend our field in that way, but you need to start with the ideas. Marsha, how about you? Yeah, I, I agree with Tom. Starting with the ideas is is integral to a great presentation. Um, in the book I wrote on teaching the adult brain, there's six principles of adult learning theory. And some of those are um, teaching to multiple modalities, knowing that you have modalities of, of adults in your audience and making sure you're addressing those. Another one is giving people time to reflect on the content. I think at one time I wasn't giving people enough time to reflect once an idea got out there, is there enough time to talk about it? Is there enough time to reflect on it? Another one is is capitalizing on the expertise of your audience. If you never give your audience a chance to share, then you don't know that there are people out there who know as much or more than you do. And so I learned as much from my audience as they learn from me by giving those opportunities for, for adults to share with one another. I plan my, my presentations the way teachers should plan their lessons, and that is starting with what do you want your audience to know and be able to do by the time they leave this workshop. And then I work backwards to make sure that happens. Marcia, do you have a rule of thumb for how often and how you go about uh, having the participants talk with each other and then talk with the larger group? Or do you do you sort of feel it as it goes and say this group is more one that likes to talk to each other and this group what wants to have? How, how do you work out that? Because I think you're a master at doing that. Well, thank you. I've gotten a feel for it over the over the years, and I think you read your audience. You know that too much talk time is not good either. There, you know, there are mm -hmm. times when they want to get things from you, or they want to get things some other way. So I make sure that I have uh, uh, a modicum of, of both. But I really think, usually, 
the way I plan my presentations is to divide it up into approximate 20 minute segments, knowing that the adult attention span is approximately 20 minutes and then making sure there's some type of activity embedded in that 20 minutes so that mm -hmm. it's not 20 minutes of me talking. It's 20 minutes of them doing something with what I propose. Mm -hmm. And so it might be talking to your partner. It might be some other kind of manipulative activity, but there are activities embedded in each one of those chunks. Mm -hmm. of Randy, how about you? Um, Principles is that question. With everything that uh, Tom and Marcia said, always start with the content. What 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 are the what are the ideas and practices that I want people to get out of this presentation? And everything else needs to be driven by that. And everything else, when it comes to to humor, to stories, to activities, it's all to embellish on that content. And then the only other thing that uh, that I would add, and I follow the same twenty minute rule that Marcia just described. It's like. Uh, every 20 minutes, there should be a feel of a bit of a shift in what we're asking of our participants to do with whatever the content is in order to keep them engaged and meaningful. And the only other thing I would add is that as I'm uh, thinking about a presentation, whether it's a sequence of 10 days across three years with like leadership teams or whether it's a one hour presentation, is I always want to leave time within each uh, each time that I'm with a group to give them some tips to self-evaluate and or self or peer coach, whatever the skills are, so that they don't, don't leave with a sense of, well, did I get this or not? Hopefully they're leaving with, I want to try this and here are some ways I can get feedback in order to, uh, to learn what might I want to do to improve this even more. So, Marsha, you touched on, thank you, uh, you touched on this. How do you go about planning your presentation? Well, starting with what I want my participants to know and be able to do, and then mm -hmm. um, deciding what chunks will get us there, what mm -hmm. are the topics, and the, that becomes my agenda. And then, as, as Randy said, then I work into where do the stories need to be, where does the humor need to come in, um, I never have any trouble with getting my participants back from breaks and lunch because they always come back to a joke and mm -hmm. they have to be back in their seats before the song ends. And so I used to use, does anybody really know what time it is by Chicago to get people back from break until a teacher told me, do you realize the next line is, does anybody really care? So we <laughs> have to change that song <laughs> to something else. But um, it, it, it's, it's funny, starting with that content and then deciding what activities and there are basically 20 ways to engage the adult brain, which are the same 20 strategies in my books that I teach to engage the student brain. And mm -hmm. so I integrate those strategies into my workshops. So do you, do you write, write a list and then put the activities beside it or do you use post-its or what's just well, literally, literally how do you do it? I actually have developed um, a lesson plan forum for teaching the adult that has five questions. You know, what do you want your, your audience to be able to do? And then how will you know when they can do it? And then it becomes, how will you gain their attention? Cause you've got to gain and maintain their attention from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So how am I going to bring them in? And then what activities, what chunks do I need? What are the chunks that I need to get this content across to my audience? What activities are going to be embedded in the chunks? And that's where the strategies come in. And then the strategies are listed at the bottom of the plan. Mm -hmm. so that I can check off those that, that I use. Because to use, you know, too many of them or too often is not good either. 
Right. So you've got to decide, you know, which ones will get my point across for this particular chunk. I remember once I had uh, lunch with Emily when she was going to the University of Kansas and uh, she was a senior and she, she went on to another university and she's done amazingly well and makes a big difference. But at any rate, we had lunch together and I said, so how's it going? And she turned to me and she said, if I have to think pair share one more time, I'm going to puke. <laughs> she had been asked, because that was like the only thing she ever experienced with think, think pair share. Randy, how about you? How do you go about planning? Um, probably some similarities to, to, to Marsha, uh, but a difference in that uh, I start with what are the, what are the big ideas or skills uh, that I, uh, I want people to have. Uh, and then I go to, um, I depend a great deal on a fairly detailed participant handout that in, and sometimes it's a framed handout with blanks in the outline for people to fill in particular blanks or to fill in their, their own ideas or opinions or, uh, whatever, uh, might be. But I use that handout to go, if I'm a terrible note taker at presentations. I'm terrible. I'm a single tasker. I can listen real well, but if I have to write while I'm listening, I don't listen as well. So I provide people with a detailed handout and I say, those of you who are active note takers, write all over this or put it aside and use a blank piece of paper. But for those of you like me who are not good note takers, this has all of the notes that you need uh, for when I'm done with this mm -hmm. presentation. It has the big ideas, it has the tasks, it has the, uh, the mechanisms. So I really build the handout before I build the presentation because that keeps the focus on what I want people to know and to be able to do. Once I have that handout in what I consider to be a reasonably decent shape, I then go back and I make notes for myself on, oh, this would be a good place to tell this story. This would be a good place to perhaps use this example and so on. Uh, and then I build slides after that. And my slides, and, and I know uh, this is a place that having seen your wonderful presentation so many times, Jim, um, mine are different only in that I, I use a lot of my slides as placeholders uh, or attention holders in this is where I am right now in the notes that I provided you. Mm. So that, that handout kind of drives the day for me. And the presentation then is, is continually coming back to this is kind of where we are in our notes right now. And here's the next big point that we're moving into. And Nancy Duarte, I interviewed her, and she's the one who helped Al Gore with uh, the Inconvenient Truth PowerPoint, which got him uh, an Academy Award and a Nobel Peace Prize, which is uh, pretty good um, for a PowerPoint presentation. But um, uh, she said your slide is like a, a billboard, and what you put on the slide should be similar to what you would see on a billboard. And so I try to do that, but it's a little tough if I'm – new to the content. Sometimes I need a few cues from the slide and, and I kind of clog it up with stuff. But my goal is to, to create like a, like a billboard. And your handout is a, like a typical of safe and civil schools. If I go to one of your presentations, I'm going to get some kind of document that gives me more information than I'd ever see on a slide. Is that, is that true? 
Yes, yes, exactly. And and um, one one compliment that I've I've received is uh, some people coming up to me uh, at the end of a presentation and say, uh, "I still have in my file a workshop that I went uh, that you did thirty years ago," and right. I do pull it out periodically, like when I'm getting ready for a new school year and designing my classroom management plan. And that, given the style of how both I and most of my colleagues present having people realize that handout could be filed and could be reviewed at any point that you want to re uh, kind of re-engage with this content is a huge compliment for us. Mm. Very cool. Tom, how about you? How do you plan your presentations? Well, what, what's come to me in listening to the three of you and when I have the opportunity to, to watch you present is that what I'm seeing are, are masterful teachers. Everything that, that was just described was a really accurate description of what really good teaching looks like. Hmm. You know, we start with a clear idea of what we want students to learn and be able to do. We have uh, some idea of what evidence we'll trust at the end to, to verify that learning took place. We, we think of the activities in between. We know they have to be appropriately sequenced and paced, and, and we can be serious for a time, and we can relax for a time, and we tell stories to make sense of complex ideas, we give practical examples, we give opportunities for students to share. And it's just, it's sort of a wonderful nature about what we do that that says we are modeling in, in what we do, what really good teaching should look like from the very beginning. That that if, if you can do in a presentation uh, what we would do in front of a class, then it's probably going to come across pretty well. Hmm. It used to boggle my mind that I would go to a presentation on how to engage students and I would sit <laughs> the whole time and not be engaged. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> With this picture. Yeah. And we're going to talk about remote learning, but I'm afraid that's a little bit of what's happening with my remote learning right now is that I've, I've really like a new presenter all over again, trying to, trying to figure it out. So yeah. Tom, I want to ask you a little bit more about the planning, not the plan, but sort of the structure of your presentation, if that's a good way of putting it. And, you know, I've seen you present many times. I've always moved and there's something I see you do. And maybe you're going to say, Jim, I don't know what you're talking about, but um, it's like almost like a great piece of music in that, that a great piece of music builds and builds and builds and builds. And then it just relaxes and you get out of it. And so you, you, you have these stories that kind of take us to an emotional edge. And sometimes you say things that make people squirm a little bit, <laughs> like you're a bad teacher, that story that you tell sometimes, um, uh, which now out of context, it's not, you're, you're <laughs> tremendously respectful of teachers. But the thing is, this, as you tell the, as you, in particularly through stories, you take people to this emotional place and then you back off, much like a great piece of music. So. Is that something you consciously try to do and something you've learned or is it just, how's that, how's that come to be? No, it's, it's very purposeful. And I, I learned about this, I guess, by, I, I just, I'm fascinated by really good speakers and really good presenters. Uh -huh. and, uh, I just enjoy watching them regardless of the message they're communicating. It's, it's their, their method and their means of doing it. So I watch a lot of, um, preachers and and ministers and how they go about their lessons and and how they're going to be representing in fact i I've, I've always enjoyed uh, 
And one summer I was like in, in Vermont, uh, teaching there at the university. And in that part of New England, there are still revival meetings during the summer uh -huh. where they'll make an arrangement for the sun, a troop will come into town and, uh, make an arrangement with a farmer to set up a tent in one of their fields and they put up folding chairs. And these, at the time, it was all men, uh, these revival speakers were just phenomenal. And what they would do is they, they would have that sort of building in a presentation. They'd start slow. You know, the Neil Diamond song about this is kind of uh, tells the story well. But then they go to a point, but I, I've also watched presenters who are, are so committed to their ideas and they want to get them across, they just pound people. Mm -hmm. and, and it gets to the point where, where people are just, they feel like they've been beat up mm -hmm. and they, they can't go on anymore. And I, I know, and both Marsha and Randy have said about this too, you judge from your audience, you know when you're pushing them hard and you know when you're getting to the edge. And at, at that point, then you have to give them a chance to relax. So then you, then you draw back and, and you can tell a story and you can be a little bit humorous and, and you can get them to relax and, and you can say, well, I, I did this too. You know, I was in the same position you are. And then, then you can build it and make another point that sort of pushes the edge. But then you that's so this constant sort of ebb and flow as you go about. But it's it's mostly trying to keep in mind what what's going to help people understand this and and take it in ways that they'll be able to use it and and not be so defensive about what they currently are doing that they're they kind of turn off what you have to say. You want them to be able to accept it and, and see that there's some aspect of it. That means giving them a break in the presentation to absorb it and reflect on it, giving them a chance to talk about it with their colleagues. Uh, and then you can come back and then push a little bit harder. But I think you're right. It's it's like a, a, a beautiful concerto where you, you you push and it's loud and then it's soft. And then you come back and you're loud again and, and soft. And you build and, and, and ease throughout. It's a... It's, it's again just part of that that really good aspect of communication when things come across well, and I think if, if you think about when that's happened to you, it gives you models of how you can help that be a part of what you do with others. So each of you uses stories really effectively, and uh, I want to I think that's at the center of this music idea we're talking about is the stories you tell, but. Randy, when I wrote Unmistakable Impact, I interviewed you about storytelling because I know how masterful a storyteller you are. And uh, um, so I'm wondering how you find them, how you craft them, what goes into being a good storyteller? And I know this could be the whole talk right here, but what are a couple of tips you've got for us on telling stories? Right. Um, um, I, I wish I could say I developed that uh, storytelling ability, again, by having kind of studied how to do that structurally or whatever, but it really just kind of evolved and was relatively easy for me, uh, and I'm not sure why, but in analyzing how that has become really over 35 years of professional development, um, such a such an important aspect of uh, uh, my ability to communicate with an audience, um, I never start with the story. I start with the content and back to the idea of like looking at the outline. Um, uh, first of all, just to segue off of something that Tom just said, um, uh, I had that, I had the, the antithesis of what was Tom described that we're all striving for as a problem of equipoise, 
which is a fancy word that means evenness of tone or intensity. And if we're thinking about like a direct instruction lesson or something, it is very intensive with active student responses and active student engagement and active back and forth. We can even look numerically at things like a number of responses per minute. But if you're getting that in the, the hard hitting way that Tom just described, it becomes just as lulling as a very dull, non-interpretable, non-involved. So you want, in all kinds of ways, you want those peaks and valleys that you used a musical metaphor, uh, Jim, is really, is really perfect for that. So in terms of stories, I'll look at, I'll look at content pieces that I'm doing. And I'll try to think in terms of, okay, if we're, if we're talking about something that's important in doing with kids, which is perhaps like a teacher, um, just as one example, being inconsistent in how they correct behavioral errors. Uh, and that then they get emotional some of those times that they're, they are correcting. Um, I would try to think in terms of, okay, what's something, what is something in real life that all of us might experience that could either be an analogy or could be a story back from when I was working with kids or uh, back from uh, uh, the, when I had the opportunity to be direct coaching in the classroom. Uh, and then it would be, I could use this particular story to embellish this point. And some rules of thumb for me and stories are, if I'm going to be critical of a teacher, I will try to frame it as an error that I have made. Mm -hmm. I was in, and, Probably at least 60% of those are true, but at least 40% of fabrications where I don't want to, I don't want to throw another teacher under the bus because that, mm -hmm. that error that I observed this teacher, that could be a great example of something to not do. I will frame it as I've made this mistake and here's what I did mm -hmm. and here's how I did it, which, which softens it for the audience. Mm -hmm. And then, um, with the story, I always go, I want, I want the story to have that emotional pitch, if it can, and then a denouement. But part of that, that decline of the action is going to, how does this relate to the point that I led into the story? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes you can lose the thread of the story relative to the content if you don't wrap it up. Here's the content piece that we're thinking of. Here's the story that makes it a little bit more relaxed, a little bit easy. If it's a good story, it'll be kind of fun, funny, or touching. Uh, and then, but here's how this relates to what, I, what I'm hoping you get, are getting out of what we're working on right now. And then that often leads to an activity of some kind of either a self-reflection or perhaps a brief discussion about uh, what do you think about this point that's being made. So how do you integrate humor into your stories? Um, like do you, not every story is a funny story. So no. No. how do you, what, how are you intentional about humor? Let's put it that way. Um, again, sadly, I'm really not, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh here, uh, unintentionally funny. Uh, a great a great rule of thumb about humor that again I learned after I think I was already incorporating it and doing it but uh, I heard this said and it was like oh yeah that does describe something I tried to do good humor always brings people closer together ineffective hum humor drives wedges between. Hmm. 
oh, which is great. why any kind of uh, racial humor, gender-based humor, et cetera, is, is 99% probable to drive wedges between us rather than to bring us closer. Mm -hmm. um, I think because I was raised to be very polite and very respectful, humor kind of came naturally that was fairly healthy humor i mean i uh, our family uh we we laugh we play we uh dinners together even if there's 20 people there's just uh, kind of constant laughter because everybody we're so blessed everybody's respectful of each other and even if it's if something um something for example um nobody in my family ever says anything hurtful to me and yet they tease me unmercifully as we do each other because they know what's on the table. They know I like laughing about this foible of myself. I know it's ridiculous and I can laugh at it. So I think humor always has to be respectful. It always has to bring people together. I do have to say a lot of the things that people see me do in workshops were something that just came out of my mind at the moment as I was making a point or doing a story and it got a laugh and I would think about it later and realize, no, that was perfectly respectful. It didn't get a laugh at anybody's expense. So then I might craft it more. How can I, how can I build the setup? of this story a little bit more. Um, and, and I sort of feel like if there, if there isn't laughter at least every five minutes or so, uh, then things are getting too serious. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good rule of thumb with children as well. Learning ought to be a, a, a joyful process. And part of joy is seeing the humor. In things. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom, how about you? How do you go about crafting and structuring stories? Well, I, I think it's exactly what, what Randy said. I think too often people uh, feel they have to have stories so they create these, these sort of imaginary tales. But if it, um, I think the key element is to make sure it is relevant to the, the content, the idea that you're trying to, to stress, and to the extent that it can be humorous and bring some aspect of joy to the conversation. And I think finally, the, the other aspect that all of us have is that at, in, at a major portion of our lives, we have tried to sort of find a keen balance between being a, a teacher, an educator, and also being a parent and having to be uh, the, the parent of a child who's going through school with teachers who may not have the same understanding of things or go about things the same way that we think they ought to be done. Uh, and so our, our families and our children going through provide a lot of resources for me uh, about things and how they reacted to to what's been done to them in classes. I don't have to look far to them. They've always been quite uh, candid um, with me and to me about not only what but what others have done to them, but what I've done to them and how I've reacted and how they've perceived that. So I think that that's a really rich resource for the kind of stories that can make sense and can bring things home. And especially in this environment where where teachers are are having to direct kids learning in a home environment. And so that, that aspect of, of being at home and learning at home and interacting with your parents in a learning environment, uh, there are lots of opportunities there to build in these kind of family things that, that we wouldn't have if kids were actually in classrooms. So we need to take advantage of that all the more. Your stories seem to, all of your stories, but I'm thinking of yours in particular right now, of course, because we're talking, but um, they um, touch people. I mean, they're moving. They're emotionally stirring, and uh, I'm wondering 
have you thought about how you do that or is it a tacit skill i mean how how do you, how do you how is it that you craft a story that catches people's hearts i'm asking you tom yeah um well i guess one of the things i find in uh in getting older is that i'm becoming more and more uh, sentimental mm -hmm. <laughs> uh and these feelings that I always kept inside are like bursting forward all the time now. Uh, I mean, I just can't watch a Hallmark card commercial and not cry anymore. <laughs> but uh, but it, it's it's also just remember they're just trying to sell to you something. Yes, I know. Uh, but uh, but I think no, the the stories that are most meaningful us meaningful to us are those that that do bring an emotional response, and and in. in in us and in the the kind of things that we see, it's kind of like where we started today. I think one of one of the things that I I most grateful for are these stories that are coming out in the news today, that are usually maybe the last story they tell in a news broadcast, but it's it's uh, something that some someone that showed uncommon kindness or courage mm -hmm. or, or fortitude in these dire situations in these horrifying conditions, people coming through and not thinking about themselves, but going out of their way for others. I think there's so many wonderful, inspiring stories like that. And they do, uh, they touch us in in really deep and meaningful ways. So I think that those kind of are like, are my model. Can we find stories like that that will, will make the point we want to make, but also elicit in people a, a caring that says, this is, this is something I want to aspire to. I want to move. And I think that part of what all of us have been saying in this is that we we want to communicate information and provide people with good ideas, but we want to inspire them too to make a change. And education is is bound more by tradition than any other field. And when we present some of these ideas, we're challenging some pretty long held traditions. And that means it's going to take a, a new level of courage to take those on and do things differently. So to the degree that we can make that meaningful by, by sharing with them our own emotional response to an enriched response of others, I think it helps that, that inspirational aspect come through. Marsha, how about you? Yeah, can I say this? Um, I want to tell you a story about telling stories. Good, that's good. <laughs> when I worked for the DeKalb County School System, part of my job was to work with the committee to plan the summer leadership conference for all of our administrators. And we would always get the first speaker and the last speaker to be the best because people remember first and last. Mm -hmm. And so the first speaker came in this year and he told this story that had everybody motivated. Oh, my gosh, it was absolutely phenomenally wonderful. And then that was on a Monday. The conference ended on a Wednesday. The speaker who came in on a Wednesday was not there on Monday. He told the same story. Mm -hmm. So my, my <laughs> the point I'm making is tell your own stories, mm -hmm. tell your own stories, tell those stories that are, are your stories or that someone has told to you, but not stories that are just out there floating around because you don't know whether your audience has heard them or not before, because that last speaker did not get the same reaction that the first speaker did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's just painful, Marsha. Yeah, <laughs> it was. The especially painful if it was, very a, painful. <laughs> the especially painful if it was the last speaker's story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, that's true. So, what about the two questions I asked Randy and uh, and Tom? Um, humor and emotion. Yeah. Um, it seems the stories 
you're a master at these things as well. So how do you decide when humor is appropriate? Is it just reading the group or I'm guessing with you, it's probably pretty structured. And then also, how do you, how do you capture people's hearts while you tell a story? Um, I think talking about humor first, helping people distinguish between humor and sarcasm because they're on opposite ends of the mm-hmm. continuum. And I could not agree more with Randy when, you know, anything that demeans a person or puts a person down is not humor. That is right. sarcasm. And that's what we want to stay away from. And so I think oftentimes teachers will confuse the two. And so I make sure that in the workshops, I never use any humor that's going to to be sarcastic mm-hmm. in any way. But sometimes it has been amazing to me over the years that I've said things that I didn't think were funny, but the audience laughed. Mm-hmm. And so I think, okay, I'm going to pencil that in and use that again. <laughs> yes. You didn't think you didn't think it was funny at the time, but you know right. they thought it was. So some of it has been kind of incidental. Um, others is I I will throw in some some jokes. I have some really good jokes that were told to me by um, administrators that I use throughout. Sometimes mm-hmm. we need a light time. Usually when we come back from break, mm-hmm. I don't. Um, I will use the humor, and people tend to look forward to it. They, they really like, I love it. If you're not laughing every five minutes, something's wrong. I, I don't know that we laugh that often, but we laugh a lot because humor should, uh, learning should be joyous. So for emotion, is it, is it about seeing something that you feel that you sense other people will have the same feeling as me if they, if they, if I paint that picture for them, is that kind of what it's about? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think so. That emotions that other people can identify with. And sometimes I have many, many, many emails from teachers who have talked about how the workshops shops have impacted them personally. And sometimes I will read excerpts from some of those from teachers who are sharing their testimonials about emotionally and what it's done to them as mm-hmm. a teacher, you know, or as an individual. Because I, I not only teach content that's going to help you professionally, I teach content that's going to help you personally as well. That's a cool idea. I haven't done that, but having a sto- having it right in front of you, and th- that to some extent, I would say it makes it easier. But it's it's a it's a testament from someone else. It's a document, but it it there's some there is powerful and re- power in reading a story like that. Too. It really. I always ask their permission ahead of time. I never share anything sure. that people share with me that I don't they don't grant me permission to use. But it's very powerful when it comes from another teacher versus just coming from me. Well, I have so many questions we haven't had time for, but I want to ask one more that uh, many people have asked us, and then I want to wrap up with a quick question. So the um, the one more, and I'll go to you, Randy, is um, how do we take all of what 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 do we do in the virtual environment to be effective presenters? What have you what have you learned so far? And then <laughs> since March, what have you learned? Right, right. Um, um, that's that's such a hard hard question, and. Uh, really some of the, let me, let me start with what I think some of the difficulties are going to be for teachers. Um, and that is just attendance at our sessions. Mm. Uh, that's going to be very difficult. I, I really think, uh, something that we, we have to think in terms of is how can we, how, how can we emphasize the critical importance of join us, even though it might be easy for you not to turn on your computer? Or whatever. I think it's going to be very difficult, for example, for teachers who have to be um, conducting their own lessons. And in some districts, we've heard they're going to be presenting the lessons from school, but they have their own kids at home. 
and in some cases, they won't be able to be uh, supervised to the degree that we thought. So uh, I think a, a critical variable is an, an emphasis on uh, by the teacher, join us for these lessons, uh, mm. be on time back from the breaks. Uh, Marcia's lovely idea of uh, tell a joke. If teachers can do something like that, you know, hey, uh, do this activity now and then I'm going to uh, give a, a give a an attention sig- uh, audio attention signal of some kind. So leave your speakers on, uh, and then I'll tell a joke because that that issue it's it's hard enough to do to orchestrate a group's attention when you're with them physically, and all of us have learned those skills as Tom so eloquently said earlier about doing that with both kids and adults, and all of that becomes infinitely harder uh, in virtual environment. Uh, another not example that I'll give that I've seen in some lessons recently is giving too many kids individual turns on each task. So it becomes very laborious. It was a relatively simple task or, or whatever. But then if you if you have 15 kids with you and you give 15 kids a chance to share their particular response on that question, you will lose everybody. It's like give a, a couple of randomly called on kids turns, give a couple of other kids turns to respond to that or whatever, and then go on to a different task and then involve other kids in random ways. But um, um, I think one of the things that's embedded in what all of us have talked about is good teaching is good theater, and that it it is it is the craft of of theater. And uh, uh, like I said, I've never had any training in this stuff, but uh, that's what you do. Theater is harder through a medium, and mm-hmm. so we just have to work really hard to find out what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. How about you, Tom? Oh, I would absolutely agree with what Randy said. And I think that, too, this really compels us as uh, sort of professional learning leaders to really be true to our ideas about understanding your audience and your participants and understanding the context. Uh, you know, we might have a set of ideas we think are really important for people to address, but if there are, you know, five other needs of theirs that are of higher priority and we ignore those, then we're not going to get anywhere. And so what I found necessary in these sort of virtual sessions is to spend a lot of time before we have the session talking to the uh, to the teacher representatives and the school leaders about tell me what's going on in the district, tell me what the problems are, to what the biggest issues are, what are you hearing from teachers about what's most troublesome to them, and how can we weave that into these ideas we want to present and, and really acknowledge that and address that as best we can right up front. So to, to know your audience and then know the context in which they are presently so we can sort of craft our ideas to fit within that and custom tailor it to address those issues that are most important to them at this time. Marsha, how about you? Virtual learning is, is truly a challenge um, and having to switch over to that. There's one model that I found that, that seems to work well and it doesn't fit all circumstances, but I've used it several times in the last few months. And that is if the teachers are in the building, um, to socially distance them in maybe eight or 10 different rooms. And then I'm at home presenting. And then I'm able to do with them, they're they're able to have partners, they're able to make dates or appointments with the people in their room, keeping that social distance. Many of them will have on masks. 
but keeping that social distance, they're able to work in families. So we do everything that we would do if I were there in person, but we just do it in um, spread out throughout the school with me on on the smart mm. board or Promethean board. And it has worked great. The faculties that have done it have, have loved it. They've actually loved it. Yeah. Mark, I'd like to just highlight what, what um, Marcia just said. Um, um, a lot of the trainings that we've been doing, we have been doing through Zoom and mm -hmm. prearranging the groups in advance. Mm -hmm. so that's what we do. Go, okay, now I'm going to have you get into your groups and that's all mm -hmm. pre-done so nobody has to wait to be in groups so that those learning communities are pre-formed or for certain tasks, the learning communities are randomized so that you get people interacting with each other and you, you do want to, to the best you can, learn how how rich whatever your platform is for getting people into partners into learning communities into random groups etc uh, to create that that accountability amongst themselves as learners that we have to be helping and participating with each other to stay engaged and on task three yeah i find yep. exactly the same and and it really compels us as as leaders of these sessions to to understand sort of cooperative learning and collaborative learning learning in teams at a much deeper level so that we can structure those to make sure that they're going to be purposeful and intentional. So I have one last question and it's just, um, what's something that struck a chord during today's session? What stood out for you? So, uh, whoever feels ready to go, I'd say go for it. For me, it's that we're more like that yeah. we are different that <laughs> basically we're agreeing with each other on various points because as Tom said, good teaching is good teaching. And right. whether you're teaching pre-K through 12 or whether you're teaching adults or college, good teaching is good teaching. And so that struck me that mm -hmm. we we may not have even seen, I've, I've not seen Randy present, I've seen Tom present, mm -hmm. but just listening to him, I realized the excellence of his work. I, I, was, I was thinking along the same line as Marcia there, and uh, those of you who are watching this, uh, the, the four of us had a delightful conversation for a few minutes before we started. And, uh, Tom brought up uh, an acquaintance of mine and a good friend of his, Dick Stiggins, and a quote that I always use with teachers, uh, I have always attributed to Dick, and, uh, Tom, please ask him if it's in fact true, that it's um, students can hit any achievement target that they can see and that will sit still for them. And I have always said that about educators as well. If we have clear achievement targets and everything we do is making that achievement target sit still for them so that they can see it, it's not a moving target. And I, I, I agree with Marsha that the three of us, uh, it was so delightful to hear that we, that we all have that commitment to starting with content. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that one of the, uh, as, as we look into what works well in professional learning opportunities, it's it's that chance to go and observe master teachers. And what has been delightful to me to see with the, the three of you is that, that we, we have this, this shared commitment to doing things well and, and have found similar ways to, to go about this craft and make sure that those ideas are, are communicated well and inspire people all for the better learning of kids. I think that's uh, that's really remarkable and, and wonderful. What's remarkable too is that you're all quite different. 
I mean, if I went to either of your, I don't know if either works for three, but any of the three of you, if I went to your presentation, I would see something significantly different despite the commonalities. We don't all have to be the same, you know. Great. What grabbed me, I was thinking, is um, my phrase that came up in my mind today is that presenting is an act of love, which I'm kind of thinking about this a lot right now. But what I mean by that is two parts. First off, uh, that, I, that I genuinely will the good of others, that I want them to succeed and I want them to feel that I want them to succeed. That goes into what you were saying, Tom, about... Um, about understanding their needs, but I think it's also in there about, um, you know, uh, what everybody's been saying about developing the craft, you know, as you were saying, Randy, keep looking at what works and keep moving forward. Um, but the second part, I think, is to try to see the good in other, everybody, like to, to look at each person in there. And that's there and what all of you said about the way you tell stories, that they they don't demean people. They respect people. If Floyd Cobb and John Crownapple were on yesterday or last week, and they talked about seeing the dignity in every person. You can lose respect, but people don't lose dignity. And so I think there's something about what you were talking about, all three of you, is you just communicate this belief in other people through the way you present. So that's what I was thinking about as you were talking about what, what grabbed me so I, I we like did half the questions so i want to do this again in about six months or so so we'll hopefully when we're actually able to present let's hope um thank you uh, so much for for doing this it was just a pleasure it's like the highlight of my week and i've had a good week so it was really really wonderful and uh i'm grateful for your friendship grateful for your ideas i'm grateful for your deep commitment to kids that comes out in your uh you're really hard work to be great at what you do, and you are. And so I'm, I'm thankful. And uh, I'll just mention really briefly next week, I'm um, going to be uh, it's talking with Bill Summers. And uh, Bill Summers is the best read person I know. I think he's read everything. And um, so I'm going to talk about his journey as a reader and uh, the books that have influenced him and how he came to be, a, what, what got him on this journey of being a reader and all the work he does. And so next week is really a story about professional reading and, and using Bill as an example. He has a new book out about uh, conflict in schools. We'll talk about that as well. So thank you all so much. And I hope we meet, if not virtually, face-to-face. -face. That would be even better sometime right. soon. And uh, take care. Have a great, great, great day. Thank yeah, you, Jim, for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Take care, Tom. Take care, Randy. Bye, Marsha. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jim. Oh, thank you.